I'm Brendan Greeley. I'm the U.S. editor for FT Alphaville. This is Alpha Chat. It's a project from the Financial Times and the Rhodes Center for International Economics and Finance at Brown University. Olivier Blanchard has held all of the big jobs that a macroeconomist could possibly ever want. He's been chair of the MIT Department of Economics. He's now on his eighth edition of the standard textbook for macroeconomics. He spent seven years as the head of the research department of the International Monetary Fund. Those years were 2008 to 2015. I don't know how much financial history you know, but they were very busy years. He's now at the Peterson Institute for International Economics, where we talked to him in his office in Washington. Here's the thing. Academics usually know what they don't know about economics. Politicians often have no idea what they don't know. So it's been Olivier Blanchard's job to stand right there in the middle. I'll give you an example. This month, he gave a speech telling a room full of economists that government debt is not always and everywhere a bad idea. This doesn't seem like it should have been controversial. It was. Economists worry that you can't say this stuff out loud or politicians will run away with it. We started, though, by talking about politics. We asked him about the Yellow Vest movement in France. Workers in a lot of countries seem unhappy. We wanted to know whether there's been a failure of economic theory or of political practice. I think there has always been the notion that the right system is a mix between the market economy and the role of the state. And the question is, where do you put the, the needle uh, between the two, and I think that what is happening suggests that we may have to think about whether the needle was in the right place. The yellow vest in France is basically a, a movement which is dominated by the working poor. And the working poor feel that they're just not getting their share, that the world is insecure, that they're not seeing their income increase. And that's, as you said, much more general than, than just France. I mean, I think that many countries are going through that. And the the interesting twist is that in France, actually, the working poor have not seen their situation deteriorate, as in the U.S. In the U.S., it's clear that the real income of the working poor has declined, or at least not increased at all. In France, it has kind of remained in line with the weak growth of France. But it's clear that aspirations have gone up much faster, right? So, so then the question is what to do. And that's where your question comes in, which is, the idea until now was, well, let, let the market economy work as much as it can because it does good things, it allocates things, you know, to the right places, and then we'll correct the problems, which is there are going to be winners and there are going to be losers, and well, we'll just do something for the losers. We'll, those who lose from trade will try to help, those who lose their jobs will give them unemployment benefits. I think the big question, at least for me, is, is, is this enough? Basically, is... Uh, can the role of the state be we try to make markets work fairly freely and then we try to repair the damage, uh, decrease the inequality which comes from market forces, or do we have to go further? And I think we may have to go further in the sense of intervening in the market process itself. Uh, what does it mean in practice? It means maybe some trade restrictions might actually be desirable. I mean, the alternative is you let trade happen and then you help the people lose from trade. But in effect, you know, we don't help these people enough and they lose in the end. So maybe in some cases you actually want to protect them, even if it's at the cost of, you know, maybe a higher price for consumers. Capital flows is another issue which we've, I've dealt a lot when I was at the fund. Uh, we used to think, well, it's good. I mean, you know, capital should go to poor countries. We know that some forms of capital are not so good. 
and maybe we want to have capital restrictions, uh, capital controls. I think there's a whole set of issues like this which are coming to the fore. Do we have the theory? Don't we have the theory? I think we have the theory. We need the empirics. We need to actually know how far we can go in terms of redistribution. In the current debate in the US about the 70% marginal tax rate is an example. Uh, We need to know how bad it is in terms of allocation uh, before we do redistribution. So I don't think there's a theoretical gap, but uh, there's a need to deal, to think about these issues, do the empirical work, try things, and it's urgent. But those are two massive shifts. Okay. We can take them in turn. The okay. first is you talked about the possibility of restrictions on trade in goods. It was settled understanding among economists and policymakers uh, until very recently, really maybe the last five years, that we wanted to work towards an ever freer market right. in goods. And sort of you from within the profession have been watching this shift to where you're now comfortable saying, you know, maybe we need restrictions on trade in goods. That seems like a significant shift. Can you track sort of how that started within the profession to where you can now say, well, look, things have changed and we think differently now? I think if you go back in time, there was this thing called the Washington Consensus, which was basically, you know, let markets work, which maybe at the time was justified given that we were coming from a state where the state maybe was doing too much and markets had to be kind of freer. But it became a Bible. And specifically, the Washington Consensus were was a set of policy prescriptions that was given to countries that right. encountered right. So the liberalize, let markets work, open your borders to goods, to assets, to uh, financial flows, and I think what didn't kill it, but at least made many question it, is the financial crisis. In effect, uh, the fact that. You know, it didn't work too well. <laughs> Finance turned out to be uh, a mixed blessing. Uh, and uh, I think in the, in, in the capital flows, which had already, uh, I mean, even before the crisis, there were indications that they could be counterproductive, but during the crisis, they were often uh, counterproductive. So I think that led many people to say, well, maybe the Washington consensus, uh, we have to move on. And I think the crisis made many move on. The current populism, which is related to the crisis, but is something else, I mean, I think has other roots as well, is making people reconsider it even more. So I would trace it to the crisis and then to this underlying force, which is now very visible, uh, related to inequality, populism. When you talk about capital controls, that's again a pretty significant shift looking back at sort of what you've learned, uh, both at the IMF and since, uh, since the financial crisis, when you say maybe capital controls are desirable, um, what kinds, under what circumstances would you say it's okay for a country to say, no, your investment cannot come in? What kinds of investment are unwelcome? So this is the issue of a slippery slope. So when you talk to people who don't want capital controls, they say, well, you know, you're going to start and then the governments are going to do crazy stuff. And that's relevant. I mean, as soon as you open the door, you know, people may just rush in and go too far. But in the case of capital controls, I think it's fairly clear that you have different types of capital flows. You have the FDI, which to a first approximation is good. I mean, Foreign direct investment. This is investing directly in plants, companies. It's very hard to get that money back out once you have it committed to a company. And it does good things. It transfers technology. It's it's good, right? But then you have the portfolio flows and, you know, the carry trade 
the CAI trade is based on, well, the interest rate here is 2% higher than there. Let me go and put my money there. And then when the interest rate moves, I take my money out. So you have these enormous flows which respond not to fundamentals and to basically details of monetary policy or the whims of investors. And they come in, you know, some of the recipient countries are very small, so it's like an avalanche of money. They misuse it because the banks are not ready to basically, you know, intermediate it in the right way. So it creates chaos, right? And then the investors, for some reason, good or bad, decide that the country next door is really much better. They take all the money out, they move next door. In the process of getting out, they create another mess. So... I have no doubt that the high frequency, the very, the capital flows which go in and out on a daily basis, uh, are not desirable to a first approximation. And they're having some kind of toll tax is clearly desirable. Toll tax is basically something, you know, you pay 5% to get in. Now, if you stay for a day, that's a 5% a day tax. It's expensive. If you stay for a year, it's 5% a year. And if you decide to stay for longer, it's a very small tax. So I think that kind of tax is perfectly justified. To be honest, I believed it was before the financial crisis. When I went to the fund, I pushed it. But I think the reason I had some success at the fund was that the evidence was accumulating that these issues were were serious ones. So this is the toll tax you say is regardless of the instrument that you're buying, whether you're investing in a new plant, whether you're buying a stock, whether you're buying debt, it, it, the, no, the tax I mean, conce- to conceptually, you would not want to tax uh, FDI. Okay. Now, it would be a small tax. You know, if you go in a country for 30 years, well, 5% is not very important. In practice, what is called FDI very often is not FDI. So, I mean, you know, as soon as you put rules in place, then the other side is very smart and finds a way of defining the flow so that it's not subject to the tax. Oh, yeah. Rules get lawyers excited. Rules get lawyers very excited. Capital controls get lawyers very rich. So what you have to do in cases like this is, you know, put a tax on everything so that it's much harder to avoid. There's a cost. It's costly because some of the stuff should really not have been taxed, but at least you avoid the game. These are practical issues. I and mean, conceptually, what you want to do is avoid these very large inflows, outflows, uh, whichever way you do it. So you wrote as part of an IMF uh, annual report, uh, a box in which uh, you looked at um, how the modeling on Greece for austerity hadn't been completely accurate, the projections for Greece. I'm wondering more broadly, Given your time there and the experience that you went through with the euro crisis, how has your understanding of modeling changed? How did the euro crisis change the way you look at macroeconomic modeling? Well, you raised a narrow issue and then a much larger one. On fiscal policy, I think part of the Washington consensus was debt is bad and therefore reducing public debt is good. And people will understand it. And so when you actually reduce public debt, you're not going to get the Keynesian effect, which is a decrease in demand and a recession, but you're going to get people so happy that you're dealing with a problem that they are going to spend more. This is what Paul Krugman calls the confidence fairy. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it has been relevant at various times in history. Sometimes when a government which was completely misbehaving starts behaving, then the confidence effect can really be there. And the interest rate that investors ask can just drop so much that the direct effect of less spending is offset by the fact that interest rates have decreased. So it can happen. I don't think it should be excluded, but it can happen. But it had become 
it was so attractive to the people who were actually in debt that it became not the Bible, but at least uh, the general view. And so the notion was, well, these countries have to do, you know, the deficits had gone up a whole lot during the crisis for good reasons. But the question was how fast to reduce them. And the people who wanted to reduce them fast used that argument. And therefore, this led to using small multipliers, to use the uh, technical uh, term, which is small effects, so small negative effects of a contraction in spending. The reality was the confidence effect was just not there. And so the effect of the reduction in spending or the increase in taxes was much larger than uh, had been assumed at the IMF and, uh, you know, in the Eurozone. So that's for fiscal. In general, how has the crisis affected the way I think about modeling? This is kind of a, a larger question. You know, I wrote a lot about modeling even before the crisis. Economics is subject to fads and fashions. In macro, the fad, the fashion, has been the development of DSGEs, uh, which are these machines which are supposed to have micro-foundations and therefore be more robust and more useful than ad hoc models, which do not try to get to the basic decisions, just assume that people behave in various ways. So this is, I just need to jump in here. This is the yes, dynamic, please, please stochastic, do. general equilibrium model. We will not- uh, That's not going to help anybody. No, it won't. But we will not attempt to explain uh, how it works, but it's important to say that this right. was the workhorse model of, of making predictions about the future that was used at economic institutions all over the world, and still is. No, that's actually not right. This is the malls which dominated the academic uh, sphere and the journals. Institutions which actually had to think about policy really, you know, understood the limits of the DSGE mall. So the Fed has a DSGE mall. I can tell you that the decisions of the Fed are not entirely based on DSGE malls. The IMF has a, a whole suite of DSGE models, but they are used in the right way, which is, well, let's look at what the simulations do, but let's also use common sense. The issue with these models, I mean, that you would want to start from micro-foundations is clearly in itself highly desirable. Why not? This is, right? When you say micro-foundations, you're talking about just understanding human behavior before you build a big model of the economy. It's formalizing human behavior as opposed to understanding it, which is an issue we can come back to. But the idea is you start with uh, consumers maximizing their utility, firms maximizing their profit, and then you build all this up. You put equilibrium in various markets and you get an outcome. Now, that by itself is desirable, but the complexity of the world and the complexity of human nature is such that there is basically no hope of getting there. And so in the interest of tractability, the assumptions which underlie these models are basically counterfactual. They assume much too much rationality on the part of people, much too much rationality in the behavior of firms. They introduce what we call in the jargon distortions, but they still in the end don't capture uh, the complexity of the world. So I've always thought that this is a very desirable line of research and people should continue to do it. But for various purposes, we may need models which are much more ad hoc. Namely, we're not going to try to explain exactly how consumers behave, but there is a fairly reliable consumption function, a relation between consumption, income, and wealth. We're not going to derive it from first principles, but it seems to work in the data. Let's use that. So much more ad hoc models 
because when it comes to policy, you actually want equations which fit as opposed to equations which should fit, which is the case of DSGs. The more general point, but that's a very personal opinion, uh, it's not shared by, by everybody, is that you need many, many malls. I mean, you need, for some purposes, DSG malls are useful. They force you to think about why you don't believe the results which come out. Uh, ad hoc malls are useful, but they are limited because they are ad hoc. They can be quite big, so I think what I call toy malls, which is what I've done in my life, which is two or three equations to clarify thought, uh, even if they're completely ad hoc, but capture something, are very, very useful. So I would put you know, much of what Paul Krugman does when he actually uses algebra uh, in that category. Simple malls, which don't pretend to explain everything, but show the mechanism at work. Uh, and then completely a-theoretical malls, for some purposes, uh, if you do forecasting. I mean, clearly, in principle, using theory should be very, very useful. If you do unconditional forecasting, if you just try to predict the future. In principle, understanding exactly how the world works, having a structural model would be tremendously useful. But in practice, if you just use a purely statistical tool, which we call a VAR, a structural VAR, but that doesn't matter, you actually do quite well. And uh, I think in the future, I wouldn't be surprised if the best forecasting models are basically AI machine learning models. That's amazing. Oh, it is amazing. I mean, I think that AI forces us to think very deeply about how we use data. I mean, econometrics uh, is going to be completely transformed uh, by machine learning. I mean, if you, uh, if you listen to the intervention by uh, Susan Athey at the AA meetings, and she showed how econometrics and machine learning are getting in bed together. It is an enormous shift. It's clear that there is in data sets information that humans have a hard time seeing because it's just so many data, so many dimensions. Uh, if we have machines which can find these relations and then humans look and say, well, this is not a serious one, it just happens, but this one, ah, we hadn't thought about this, that's going to happen. Uh, it's going to completely change uh, empirical economics. One of the things that I'm hearing from you is that there's a lack of trust between economists and politicians. In journals... When did I say that? <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm going to put some words in your mouth. Yes, let, me, let, 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 me, let me try to understand, but because you're talking about several different actors within policymaking. You have economists that are talking about their DSGE models within journals. Um, among themselves, they understand the limitations of those models. They understand the assumptions that go into those models. They understand that it's an exercise in terms of figuring out what you think should be true so you can understand how it's different from reality. Then you have institutions, the Federal Reserve, the IMF, that understand how these models work because often they're full of academics, but then have to make decisions sort of based on their best understanding of how the models don't work or where the models are inaccurate. Then you have another actor, which is the policymaker, who very likely has one or two semesters, one of micro, one of macro, and they're going out there with very simple models or they're listening to a modeler uh, who may not have the same interests that they have, give them results. Uh, and so I hear two things. Um, one of them is sometimes economists are reluctant to give politicians to think certain things because they're going to run away with those things. That's one issue. The other issue is politicians retain very simple models of the economy and they retain them forever. And so it's very difficult for research to then reach politicians in time for it to actually have an effect on policy. Is that a fair way to describe the challenges between 
academics and politicians in making policy? Yeah, very generally, I think that's that's always an issue, which is how do the experts actually get their message through and how do the politicians use the advice of the experts uh, in the best possible way. I tweeted something two weeks ago on based on the following remark, which is uh, central banks have very large research teams. Ministries of finance typically do not have a research team at all, which leads to monetary policy being discussed by experts at length in the right institutions and fiscal policy not being discussed anywhere except in academia. My tweet was, why? Why is it that there is this distinction between the two? So I got many answers, but I think one of them was politicians don't want to know uh, because they have their views, they have been elected based on something, and uh, you know they don't want an expert telling them to do A when in fact they want to do B because there would be a document showing that they didn't do A. I think there's some truth to that. Some politicians don't want to know, I and mean, they're politicians, they're not uh, economists or experts. I think politicians come in different shapes. In my life, been fairly close to a number of them. Some of them, I would say, for example, the president of France at this point, listens very carefully to experts, may not listen carefully enough to people, but he listens very carefully to experts, and he really tries to see what should be done. Then he thinks about the political message that he could sell based on this, but it starts there. And then there are politicians who think they know and don't know, and then they don't want to listen. That's not a problem for economists, it's a problem about politicians in general. I mean, how do you make contact, say, with people in the current uh, Trump administration? Does anybody want to listen? No, they don't. I don't have a simple solution to that on my side. If we leave the Trump administration to the side, Very because hard. they seem exceptional in many ways right. uh, in terms of the way no, they manage it, information. It's much more general, I would say, if you talk about the European Commission. I think it's evolving but it was largely dominated by people who had kind of a so-called German view of things, uh, it was very difficult to convince them. Uh, in this case, what do you do? Well, you try, you try, you try. It often feels like watching policy being made from the outside, that what it really is is an emotional sense of something that's then bolstered by data. For example, you talk about the German view of things. Uh, the easiest way to boil that down is skepticism of debt. Um, Not skepticism, hate of debt. Yeah. You gave an address at the American Economic Association at the annual meeting uh, earlier this month in January, where you said basically there are instances in which a country taking on debt might not be a terrible thing. And that was a very hedged observation. But even that observation, the way it was received, it sounded like Olivier Blanchard is suddenly condoning government debt. So is there a German bias within the profession of economics that it's just very hard to think of debt as a good thing in any case? When you have a message like the one that I gave at the AEA meetings, you have to think very hard about how it's going to be used. And I knew that some people would say, well, that is great. And some people would say, no, he doesn't understand anything. So I think you have to be ready for it. And you just try to uh, calibrate your message so that it's not going to be too much twisted one way or the other. But Before we go too farther, I hate to well, interrupt you. Can you summarize your message? Because I think it's an important one. So the message is that in an environment of very low interest rates, that is not such a big issue. And in particular, when the interest rate is less than the growth rate, then actually you don't just formally, and I'm not pushing the argument beyond that, you can actually not repay the debt because the debt will increase at the interest rate, but the economy will grow at the growth rate. If the growth rate is greater than the interest rate, 
the ratio of debt to GDP uh, would actually go down even without having to raise taxes. And the point I made is that this is actually the environment in which we are. It doesn't mean that debt is good. It's still the case that debt might crowd out capital, so they are less for future generations. But it says you're not going to run into catastrophes right away. You can basically increase debt. The basic message in the end was debt is probably not good on net, but you can use it. It's not the end of the world, but use it for the right things. You know, if the economy is very weak and monetary policy cannot be used, use it. If there is public investment to be done, the infrastructure is in terrible shape, use it. Don't use it for no reason at all. So don't have the deficits we have in the U.S. at this point. It doesn't make any sense. But you can use it. It's the tool. It's not the tool that you should avoid to use at any price. It's the tool you should use when you need to. So that was the message of the. Uh, so this is a very cautious recommendation that you made. But um, how was it? Re- was it received? It's right. It's cautious, but. Again, it is a bit at odds with the cliché view that that is catastrophic, that kind of a German view that if you have that, you have to eliminate it as fast as you can. So in that sense, yes, it's cautious because I try to be reasonably cautious, but it's fairly far from, I would say, the dominant view. Why that dominant view? Why Germany? Uh, books have been written on this. It clearly goes back. It's the same as with respect to inflation. I mean, hyperinflation in Germany what happened in the last hundred years in Germany explains a lot of that. But it had come to dominate the discussion, not only just in Germany, but in Brussels, and, and to some extent in parts of the US as well. So the message here is relax. Not relax too much, but relax. <laughs> so you, uh, you did some writing and gave a talk uh, about a year ago about the challenges uh, that we have in macroeconomic modeling, where you talked a little bit about what you've already talked about today, which is that we need uh, different models to fit different situations. But then you broke down a series of challenges, um, you know, easy to repair, difficult to repair, uh, hard to repair. I was interested in hard to repair because, you know, you talked about the things that we saw happen in the euro crisis and in the U.S. financial crisis. We talked about, you know, liquidity runs on shadow banks. That's, you know, that is what happened in the financial crisis. You talked about the doom loop, uh, which is, you know, when countries' banks are buying that country's sovereign bonds and everything uh, goes pear-shaped together. If these things are hard to repair and these are the things we saw just happen, is that an argument for very clear regulations saying to banks, just don't do this, rather than modeling saying, this is the extent to which we can do this. Do we just need simple, clear rules for banks to prevent catastrophes, even if it's not the most efficient use of capital? What's hard to repair fundamentally, and I'm going to be nerdy, but I'll explain, is that the world is nonlinear. We basically had come to models which were linear, uh, which means that we could actually understand. We thought we could understand them. Uh, we could understand the malls anyway, maybe the world. Uh, and policy was relatively easy to do. I think what we learned, we had forgotten and then we, we discovered, is that there are these things called nonlinearities. Th- things can go very wrong very quickly. This is what I call dark corners in the lecture I gave at the AA a few years back. There are places where things can happen. And, and that's what is intellectually analytically very difficult to handle because many of the techniques we have, be it modeling, be it econometrics, uh, are based on linearity or something close to it. And so this raises enormous uh, challenges. So that 
the answer to half of your question on how we should deal with these things in terms of policy, which is the, uh, the other half. I think there, there is an interesting issue, which is close to what you asked, but not quite, which is, suppose we decide that we really want banks to behave. Uh, should we do it through very tough financial regulation? Or should we have less financial regulation, but use what we call macroprudential tools? The difference being financial regulation, you say, you know, you have to have capital ratios of X percent. Don't want to know, no exceptions, you just do it, right? Uh, macroprudential says, no, no, we're going to be more refined, sophisticated. You actually don't need that capital ratio all the time. You need it sometime. And so we're going to move it over time. Five years ago, so kind of after the acute phase of the crisis, there was a lot of hope that macroprudential tools uh, would be very useful. But what we learn is that it's very difficult to use them for both technical and political reasons. Uh, you have to do unpleasant things when people really don't want you to do it. Uh, so this has led me to go in the direction you suggest, which is maybe it's better rather than have a capital ratio which moves over time, which would be ideal in a world in which politicians behave. Maybe what we want is a higher capital ratio all the time. We don't move it. Sometimes it's too high. Yes, there's a cost. But we don't have to take political decisions along the way. We take one at the beginning, we set it, and hopefully it stays in place. I think this issue of how much flexibility you want to give to policy and how much you want to write in the form of rules is a very important one. In general, I don't like rules. I mean, I think you can nearly always do better with discretion. But when you take into account what politicians are likely to do, sometimes it leads you to say, let's do it. Let's just have a rule and stick to it. Olivier Blanchard, thank you very much. My pleasure. Alpha Chat is produced by Dan Richards at the Road Center for International Economics and Finance and Amy Keene from the Financial Times. We'll be posting show notes on Alphaville with links to Olivier Blanchard's speech and some papers. But as always, we want to understand how and where you listen and what you want to hear. So please email us at alphachat at ft.com. I can't get into that inbox yet. It requires a security thing that I can't figure out because I'm evidently an idiot, but I will get to it this week. For my part, I promise to never believe in the confidence fairy again.